Hey guys, before we dive into this week's episode, I've got a little offer for you. This year I launched my online studio, Mindful Moment, and I'd love for you to prioritize your own well-being and come and have a free trial. You'll get unlimited 24-hour access to my growing library of meditations, mindfulness techniques, breathwork, movement sessions, yoga classes, sound healing recordings, and more. Whether you've got two minutes or a full day, and whether you want to improve your sleep, feel calmer, or let go of damaging thought patterns, there are sessions there to support you. All from the comfort of your own home on your own timetable. Go to lilysilverton.com forward slash mindful hyphen moment to start your free seven day trial today. I just don't want to lose the like joy and like the joy of life and like the ability to laugh at myself and have fun and have that balance because the work is really heavy and the world is really heavy and facing that reality and you know holding yourself accountable and working and educating and all that kind of stuff is can be really draining and really hard um but also really weighty and important and like so I have to have that silliness welcome to priorities the podcast about the things in life that really matter I'm your host journalist and coach Lily Silverton and each week along with a roster of incredible guests I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives sharing mindset tips strategies and inspiration to help you prioritize your own life We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is campaigner, speaker, and writer, Gina Martin. Gina is best known for founding and running the national campaign to make upskirting illegal and changing English and Welsh law by creating the Voyeurism Act. Three other countries have since followed suit, which is incredible. Gina has also written for platforms such as Stylist, Grazia, Telegraph, World Economic Forum, and Refinery29. And in 2019, she released her first book, Be the Change, which is a practical, accessible guide for activists just starting out. Welcome, Gina. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such an honor to have you here, especially. So we're talking on Monday the 15th after a very heavy week of activities. How are you how are you doing today? How's your morning been so far, Gina? Um, it's okay. Uh, I'm not doing great, if I'm honest, very much at the stage which I get to, which is where I can't aware anything about crying. So you'll probably get some tears today at some point. Um, but I try not to be ashamed of that. Like it's the work's hard and, and the realities are hard. And so there's times when it's really emotional work and that's okay. What do you do to take care of yourself when you're in stages like this and when there's so many demands on your time and your emotional time as well? Um, well, I just started therapy about a month ago, which is mind boggling to me that I didn't start it three years ago. Um, and that's really the main thing that I'm, that I find is helping because when things get really heavy or really hard, I just know I have that hour. I just go, oh, Emma on this day me and her at that hour and I know I'm gonna have a space to talk about things and work through things without any kind of shame or fear or whatever um because I exist in quite a lot of different spaces in my work and each of those spaces require a kind of sort of different version of me and my work and so like having that hour is huge so there's therapy and then also trying to get off my phone but there's a huge guilt of guilt level of of this which is only put on me by myself which is that you start this work to be with people and to be a part of a community and progress stuff and help people 
And so when the news cycle gets really hard and all this kind of these conversations trickle into the mainstream, the amount of people who, you know, need you or want you or whatever, the pressure gets so massive. And then you can't really opt out because these are the times when it's important to talk. But these are the times when you get exhausted because you're doing it every other day. And oh, sorry, that's my phone. Great example of why I'm not doing, I'm not on top of things at the moment. I'm so sorry. Um, so I'm trying to get off my phone. I'm trying to take, get, get to sleep earlier and stuff like that. And my boyfriend is being quite strict with me because I can't do it myself if I'm completely honest. Do you switch your phone off overnight or switch on an airplane or anything? Or you do you keep it on? I keep it on and I think it's because... I'm worried there's been a couple of times in my life where there's been like a phone call about something and I'm just that was like serious and I'm worried I'm I'm really worried that if I turn my phone off like someone won't be able to get me like my mum or dad or something will happen or whatever so I keep my phone on um but I don't think that's very healthy and I keep in the same room and I'm on it as soon as I wake up and I'm on it until I go to bed and I just don't think that's healthy for me so I need to figure I'm trying to work through that in therapy to be honest with you What I do with mine, because I have the same thing, I need to be, um, my certain people need to be able to get hold of me at the moment. So what I have is an emergency mode, night mode, where if they're Mm. in your emergency contacts, you've got an iPhone, Mm. if they're in your sort of um, favorite contacts, that's what it is, then you can set it so that only if they call will your phone make noise. Every every day is a school day. (laughs) <laughs> I'm doing that tonight okay if you struggle just message me and I'll, and I'll show it to you but that's um I think really important because it just means it's also quite good for daytime when you're working because it means that you're not distracted by any other messages or of course but then you know like you're available if you really need with your family but you're just not distracted by the other hundred things yeah exactly. that's so good thank you for that I'm gonna do that maybe go for that because I sleep with my phone in the room as well um at the moment and do find it hard not to pick it up first thing yeah really hard we need to put a ban on you for like an hour before bed or something or half an honestly hour. it's really bad because it's Geordie my partner's like you're like you have to be off your phone for a year to blah 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 and I'm like look don't take away my autonomy <laughs> it's like <laughs> do you know what I mean I'm like how dare you and he's like I care about you so much and you're really not okay and I'm like crying you know like fully crying and like walking around the house just like staring thinking about things and work and he's and he's talking to me and I'm not responding and he's like hey I think maybe you need to ch- check out for a second and I'm like don't you dare tell a woman what to do it's like <laughs> I'm not but you know what I mean I still I have that defiance where I'm like hey people need to talk about these things and I'm I'm doing, giving them a space and he's like so lots of other people you can take an hour off I'm like no I can't it's so stupid I mean also it's really addictive right that's oh thing. so what addictive your brain is really really addictive yeah I'm never going to pretend I have full control over it like I fully don't I absolutely don't right I have a think about that well you sit and think about that yeah (laughs) all right so there's been a moment in your life a big moment where your priorities have shifted in an instant so why don't we start with that if you're happy to of course yeah um that moment was probably in 2017 when I was 25 and I was upskirted at a festival and that is probably what most people know me for, not being upskirted, but well, actually, yeah, basically being upskirted. Another thing, we'll like through in therapy. Um, and a group of guys were hitting on me and my sister and they took photos um, of my crotch, put their hands between my legs and took photos of my crotch um, on their phone and passed it around to the group. And 
I felt them all laughing at me and I grabbed the phone. Um, I saw one of them looking at WhatsApp. He'd been sent the picture of my crotch and I grabbed the phone and kind of ran off with the phone to the security and then eventually to the police who I'm in a situation right now where I'm learning a lot about the police and um, the criminal justice system in a way that I I hadn't learned when I was doing this campaign. And so when I look back at the way that I ran to the police and was just like, oh, they'll protect me. That's what they're for. Every single person I've known who is non-white in this work, whenever I've told the story has been like, wow, that's amazing because I've never felt like that. Like I'd never run to the police and be like, they're going to protect me. That's just never been my experience. And it's so interesting to look back now because obviously I was 25 when this happened, but now I'm 30 almost. Um, But I ran to them and they separated me and the perpetrators and they said like, there's not much we can do here. If you'd chosen not to wear knickers, it would be a graphic image, but you did choose to wear knickers so that you won't hear much from us. Turns out that was legally unsound. They weren't actually correct about that, but it just shows how little they understood about the laws that they could use or what was available to them um, to charge someone with upskilling. Um, They let us go, me and my sister and the guys. I don't think they even kicked them out. And then just spent the rest of the night completely humiliated. And I looked into law and found out it wasn't a sexual offence and ran a two-year political and media campaign to change law, which I did in 2019. But I think before that moment, There'd been a lot of situations where I'd felt unsafe or I'd felt taken advantage of or I'd felt objectified or sexualized or whatever. And each time I'd kind of lay in bed afterwards being like, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done this. And that moment in that moment, my priorities shifted because I felt incredibly unsafe and my priorities became my safety and the broader problem of our safety in public spaces in that moment I don't think I realized it but it did because it changed the way I changed everything about my life in that moment the way I work the way I learn how I feel about the world and what I do in the world do you feel like it changed the way you see the world yeah I think I don't think I was seeing the world I don't think I wanted to see the world as it is until that point. I think I knew we had a serious problem. I think I was aware that that was a real, a reality and I, and I felt it because I'd experienced it multiple times, but I'd also internalized a lot of the stuff I'd learned about women and marginalized genders. And I'd also internalized a lot of the conditioning and the normalization of what happens to us. And I didn't want to see the world as it was. And I think after that happened, I went on a kind of I don't want to minimize it, but like it definitely, I definitely went on a kind of war path for about two years um, and learned what, what the reality was we were dealing with. And that, that meant, you know, thousands of stories from children who had been upskirted, some by their teachers, you know, that, and I saw what we had a massive problem with. So it definitely shifted my perspective of the world and it changed the way I moved through it completely. And has made one of your main priorities, social education. Yeah, cultural shift. I think as well after the work I did with the law change, I would really struggle to go back and do something like that again. People always ask me, what laws do you want to change? And it's like, I think it would be very, very arrogant of me to go and change laws. Like I don't, I don't know enough about the system. And although I'm proud of that work, it was incredibly traumatic to do that on your own. And I can't really express how hard it was. And I couldn't do that again. 
so I think cultural shift and education like you say is kind of where I'm going to be for the rest of my career what does that mean to you then what does that look like it looks like giving uh women a space to explore how they've internalized the way the world tells them to move through the world and it means giving it means reaching across the aisle which I hate that phrase because it's usually used to um, encourage the wrong way of reaching across the aisle but I think I need to reach across the aisle and I want to reach across the aisle and give men a space as well to explore masculinity and 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 ask questions and learn from someone who's in this work because a lot of women and marginalized genders that go through this stuff and are doing this work don't want to do that. And I can completely understand why they don't want to do that. It's very hard when you're living through this reality to then take, spend the rest of your time handholding and educating the community that perpetrate these things against you. But I believe I have the stamina to at least open up that conversation in a accessible way. And I'm a very accessible person to learn from. I'm the like colorful dressed young white working class girl who can be like you know break the public follow me I'm not you know I'm just very accessible so I feel like I can have those conversations with men and women and most importantly young girls and young boys I'm researching a campaign at the moment um which I'm, I'm not talking about yet but I'm just trying to figure out where I sit because I think I sit really neatly between politics and regular people and I I bridge that gap a little bit for people who feel like politics is so all the issues we have in our country are so complex and so much bigger than they could ever understand and I've been that person who didn't understand them so I think I can help simplify like that a little bit and I also think I can hold space for young women and girls and men and boys to discuss gender inequality in a way that doesn't feel intimidating and that feels accessible and that's what I hope to do. What does it feel like to you on a day-to-day basis to do this kind of work? Um, very Well, it, it depends what day you ask me. <laughs> you ask me, you know, a certain day when I feel like I have these, you know, months where I'm researching stuff and I'm learning and I'm so, the energy is amazing and I'm just like in it and I just can't imagine doing anything else. Not because oh I love it like you love a normal job just because it's like what it just feels like my purpose like I can't once you learn about this stuff you can't shut the doors and go back really like there's no there's no learning about structures in society and structural issues and then going back and being like well carry on my life and nothing about them like it changes you forever so <laughs> there's a real huge purpose some days and there's a real hope and like belief that we can change things and then like some days there's just like now there's you know exhaustion and sadness for everyone and real like seeing the reality of what's happening here and the pain that's happening here and so I think probably the two adjectives I'd use would be exhausting but purposeful are probably the two ways I feel most about this work talked about your phone earlier in the room your boyfriend said do you take breaks for your own Uh, no I mean I do if I'm if I'm doing well if I'm having a week where it's a normal working week whatever that looks like for me because it's always different but say you know we're not in this huge news cycle where I'm being pulled a million ways a from the media from different communities and all that kind of stuff and 
I'm trying to show up for everyone um, in a very quick and momentous way this week because we're dealing with so much and there's so much conversation happening. If we're not in this kind of thing where it's trickled into the mainstream, but we're just doing our campaigning and our grassroots stuff normally, then I'm, I'm better at looking after myself because I'm not rea- as reactive and I'm thinking about, okay, like I could do this today and then tomorrow I need to do this. And then on Wednesday, I can think like that. But when you're in a, a news cycle period, a big cultural moment, I guess I should say, then it, it gets very reactive and it's very, I find it a lot harder to look after myself because if I'm not there in those moments to have the conversations and to try and change things, then why am I here? Do you know what I mean? Because this is the moment when the the opportunity has, has arisen for some, you know, for a very sad reason off the back of a kind of horrific reason, but we're having these conversations. So that's when I need to show up as well. So I find it hard to take breaks during these periods, but when I'm more at a kind of normal work stream, I'm better at that for sure. And I, and it will be like, you know, I'm going to, I've been on social media for 11 hours yesterday. So today I'm going to put it on airplane mode for half the day, or I'm going to paint for half the day and not reply to emails or whatever that may look like. I think that's the key really, because when you do need to show up in whatever industry you're working in, in whatever sort of life you have, wherever your demands are, you've still got to show up at that time and you can't not. And and the brain is quite primed to do that as well. The body and the brain are quite primed and ready to do that. And it, the key to sort of preventing long-term burnout, I guess, is finding those spaces where you don't, you're not so needed or you don't feel that you have to be completely available. And so you can really, you know, I really hate this um, saying, but like refill your own cup, you know, fill your cup. Yeah take time for yourself, actually replenish what's going on so that you are prioritizing yourself because so much what you do is prioritizing others or putting yourself in a, in a societal space. Yeah. Or in someone else's shoes or whatever. And that, and that's, I think you're right. Like I need, I think identifying when those moments are is the hardest part, but probably the most important part, because if you're working in like advocacy or grassroots activism or gender inequality or trans rights or whatever you're working in those issues are never they never stop that none of none of this work stops so there's always going to be opportunity to help advocate you know give your skill sets to someone else you know whatever that is like educate yourself read up on something learn something write something talk about something whatever there's always going to be that opportunity it's never going to stop so it's up to me to find out okay one of the moments where I I'm making myself available or I absolutely need to be available Mm. because there's you know that's up to me because there's always the work's always there it doesn't stop it's not like I have a work hours you know yeah absolutely I work with quite a lot of teams that run charities doing um meditation or workshops with them and it's a very um all these very similar this similar stuff comes up over and over again which is that they nothing ever stops so they don't know when to stop themselves but then they end up experiencing burnout and they have to take time out take take time off of their career because you can't work at that level especially with really traumatic stuff it's just not sustainable is it and I know you know I I come back to this phrase all the time with my work and my life which is like you can know something to be true and not feel it I know that's true but I struggle to implement it because I don't it's almost like I'm like 
I know that's true for everyone else. If anyone else told me about it, I'd be like, oh yeah, I, I can see that. But then when it's with my work, it's like, no, but I just need to do this thing for 20 minutes or no, but I just, you know what I mean? It's not, I don't almost believe it for myself yet, but I know it's logically true. And it's really like forcing myself to take, to take time off because I'm not, I can't naturally do it. So I have to treat myself like a child and I have to get my boyfriend to treat me like a child sometimes. <laughs> I think everyone does. I always say to people I work with, just imagine that it's like your best mate. Yeah. You know, that you're saying, you'd be like, what are you doing? Like, like, yeah. Bonkers. Your family is another huge priority for you. Yes. Talk to me about that. Oh, I don't know. I just love them so much. (laughs) I really miss them. I haven't seen them since March last year. Um, my, well, they came to a park and sat, in August when the numbers were at the lowest, we sat away from each other in a park for a couple of hours, but I haven't been able to spend time with them or hug them or touch them or sit and relax and chat with them since March last year. And my mum's um, been sheltering since March last year. So every time I think about them, I get very emotional, but they're just, I grew up in a very... Um, close, loving family unit and like in a unit where my mom and my dad were very, they weren't, they were never really like just a mom or dad to me. They had very autonomous and interesting lives and they've been together since they were 14 and they're still so much in love with each other and they're best friends and they have a very healthy relationship. And I learned so much, I think, just through watching them. Um, And like, there wasn't really mom or dad problems, you know, like I didn't, go like oh my first bra I better go to mum about that I was like dad look at my first bra you know like dad would take me out to buy tampons and like there wasn't really any it was there was a little less gender binary with the whole roles that they played it was very like oh there's mum and dad that you can go to either of them and I just think I had a very healthy relationship with them growing up and they still like last night yesterday it was mother's day and I called my mum um and I spent an hour like we talked about her day and everything and then we spent an hour, I spent an hour crying about everything. And she's, she was just, I was like, I'm so sorry. It's Mother's Day. And I just spent an hour crying about everything. And she was like, that's what Mother's Day is for. She was, she was like, you have to go out and do this work. Like people need it. Like it's important. And, and so much with this work, because it's so difficult, you get the narrative quite a lot of like, this is really, you're crying all the time or you're struggling a lot. Like, do you think this is right? Should you be doing this? Cause this is really hard for you. And my mum and dad just really respect my work and they really support my work. And my sister's like my bodyguard, like anything happens online, <laughs> like rate threats or comments or whatever. And she's just like there and she's like on the end of the phone. And I just, they're just my best friends that I feel like family has always been my priority and it doesn't matter what I do or where I go, or whatever, like it will be that because nothing else really comes close to the balance and the nurturing that they all give me. They're all my best friends. Well, I've got a two-year-old and I hope that she oh. feels way about me on Mother's Day that she can. I'm sure she will. Yeah, and spend the whole, spend the time talking about what she's doing and being honest about it. Yeah, vulnerability is very important in families. One of your other priorities that you said to me was joy. And I am so interested to hear more about this, especially at the moment, because I think the thing that's come up over and over and over again with the pandemic is this lack of joy. 
Mm. That that's sure. one of the huge things that is missing from people's lives that um, after a little while you start to feel ground down. Yeah, even, we don't... Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, even if, you know, the rest of your life is, you know, if you've got a home and you've got a job that you're not at risk and, you you know, you're able to shelter and you've got the space to do that and so on and so forth. So many of those basic um, rights to health are available to you. The thing that comes up over and over again is this lack of joy. Yeah, and I think we... I'm not sure we prior, we realise how much it... Um, affects us and how much we need it um everyone deserves it I feel like I only became super aware of how much I missed it when I was working on the campaign because I was working full-time and then I was working on the campaign outside of work hours so it was kind of like 5am till 1am or whatever for about two years and I just didn't I just became this super driven but very interpersonally and the way I am with people didn't change but I just felt like this really driven um I don't know what the adjective would be how do I describe it like I just lost my spontaneity and my ability to just not not take myself too seriously and I just uh, slightly like I just slightly lost myself a bit and a huge part of my life because I'm from a Liverpoolian family and it's a very funny family my sister's a comedian my mum and dad are so funny and so silly and so playful and no like it's so nothing no one takes themselves seriously like they're just stupid and hilarious and this work is really serious so there's a tendency sometimes to let that spill over to how you feel about yourself and it's really important to me that I've stayed it sounds so wanky. Oh, can I swear? I'm really sorry. Yeah, you can. No sorry. <laughs> it sounds really silly and like, ugh, but like, I just don't want to lose the like joy and like the joy of life and like the ability to laugh at myself and have fun and have that balance because the work is really heavy and the world is really heavy and facing that reality and, you know, holding yourself accountable and working and educating and all that kind of stuff is can be really draining and really hard um but also really weighty and important and like so I have to have that silliness I have to prioritize that joy I have to wrestle with my boyfriend and play have bouncy ball for like tournaments and just do silly stuff because it's like the only real escape from the heaviness of the world and I think we all need that and we all need people with who were our silliest selves and I think we lose that as we grow up. Like I, my mum and dad and my sister, just like they're so childlike in the way that they play and the way that they have fun. And like, you know, my dad like wrestles me now. I'm like 30 and like tickles me like when I was seven. And I'm like, I literally can't do anything to stop it. Like, <laughs> and he wrestles my mom and just stupid stuff. Like I remember going into the kitchen and my mum was like, she'd spill an entire box of like washing up powder for the laundry. And she was trying to pick it up with a spoon, but she'd pitch she didn't have her glasses on and she'd picked up one of those like fish slices, which just has like holes in it. And I just went to the kitchen and she was just like dying, like couldn't breathe, losing her mind laughing, just doing it. And then laughing, like, cause she was just wetting herself at the fact that she was trying to pick up 
a mountain of powder with a, with a fork essentially and she was there for like an hour like wetting herself laughing at it's just this real like childlike ability to laugh at stuff and play and not let the world grind you down and get too serious because it, the world's hard and it's harder depending on who you are and you have to have those people with who you are just silly and nothing matters and you don't need anything seriously and it's fun because prioritizing joy I think is really important I think we just take it for granted that we'll have it and actually that's not true how do you feel when you're not prioritizing joy like not like myself I think I've always been like a really silly person and a really like extroverted person and like quite a feeling person I move on feeling and I not too bothered what people think about me really as in the way I am if they think I'm too silly or I'm too loud or whatever and I have always been no like all of my cards in school were like effervescent or like distracting or like Gina's very loud or you know so it's always just been part of my my identity in the way I am and I just feel like when I'm not prioritizing joy and when I'm not being silly and having fun and like allowing space for that I just don't really feel like myself I just feel like I'm growing up too much and I'm, I'm losing that kind of childlike fun and wonder of the world which I don't like how do you manage to prioritize it when for example your work feels very heavy and I also know as you've shared quite a bit as any woman who is in sort of public realm is that you also as you mentioned before with your sister being your gatekeeper um experience quite a lot of um comments and abuse online I think there's a couple of things that I've specifically chosen to bring back into my life that I lost. So before this work and before I went into the public eye and all that stuff, I was always a super arty person. I studied art for seven years and I worked as an art director in advertising. And just because you're a person, you don't have a lot of time, things take a backseat. Things that are hobbies that actually bring you joy become not a priority. And it's up to all of us to think about what are the things that we did before life got serious whatever that means for us that made us feel like ourselves like what did 15 year old Gina like love doing what did 18 year old Gina love doing when you just you know when I was in uni and life was just about finding out what I like to do and what I was good at what was the thing that brought me so much joy and those things for me were painting and drumming I've drummed since I was younger my dad's a drummer and he taught me and so much of my work is up here. So much of my work is is ideas and thoughts and education and uh, concepts and creativity. And when taking that to something physical, like having to move both my arms and legs at the same time, there is such a release in that because I can't be better at the drums if I think my way around it. Like I can't be better at the drums if I challenge myself mentally on my thoughts and ideas. Like I could, you know what I mean? It's like a completely different way of learning. And it just makes me feel like I'm 15 again. I feel like I'm in the loft at my house and I'm playing to Paramore and I've got all their songs down and I am Hayley Williams. And my mum and dad are like, come and have dinner. And I'm like, no, I'm nailing it. Like, I feel like I'm a kid again. And it's really important for me to have those things that I had before this work. And that's that, you know, joy doesn't have to look like silly playing childlike fun. Like it can be playing the drums or it can be painting where... I'm just going to put this color here and it looks amazing next to this color. And that's the extent of it <laughs> mentally. It's like so lovely and soothing. So I think hobbies that I, that defined me when I was younger 
are really important to bring back when you're struggling because they just make you feel like yourself again. I think that's really, really good, good advice, especially with creativity as well. Finding mm-hmm. something and creativity for creativity's sake as well, rather yes. than because you like, for example, you worked as an art director before, but you don't at the moment. However, that's still very much a part of you. And so you're just putting it out there for you rather than for any end product. Yeah. And the drums is a big thing like that for me. Like my paintings, I have a small art business, which is a complete joy because it's just completely on my own time. I control the whole thing and it's just mine, but I'm still, that's still monetizing a hobby, but drums, no one gets to see me play. I'm not joining a band. It's not about how good I'm going to be in six months. It's about how much joy I'm getting out of it every day when I'm playing. And that's where it ends. And I think that's really healthy. My work centres on helping people better navigate this challenging modern world, so I'm very excited that this episode of Priorities is sponsored by Anatomy, a London-based modern apothecary that provides natural solutions to support the stresses of daily life. Anatomy's range of vitamins, health supplements and therapeutic essential oils have been developed with the help of sports scientists, nutritionists and aromacologists, and they combine the best of nature and science to create products that support your essential health and well-being. I've been using their defense and immune support vitamins all winter, and I love their sleep and recovery oils. I put a little of their blue chamomile insomnia blend on my wrists and the soles of my feet before I get into bed, and always find it helps settle my body and mind. Anatomy are kindly offering any Priorities listener 20% off their first order with the code LILY20. Check them out on www.anatomy.co. Talk to me about your um, newsletter fairly new newsletter which um is brilliant I've signed up for it and I'm really enjoying it it's called the oh. good Cat. um I'm I so glad yeah really well I love designed. it <laughs> I was thinking oh, thank you. really well designed and now that makes sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> I can't let go of that I'm quite picky about I'm quite a visual person with the art director thing so I'm very like everything has to be designed um I love it so much I think I've struggled with the social media aspect of my job for a while because of a multitude of reasons because I've got a lot of attention for my work when there's a lot of people who've been doing this a lot longer and have been doing, I I was held up after the, after the campaign, quite honestly, as like the girl boss narrative. And I really struggled with that. Um, And there's that constant thing between like, but I'm a palatable white person who has the access to bring my community along with me and say, Hey, have we thought about this or let's talk about this or create a space where white women like me can try to show up more for people and take actions and do things but at the same time and a platform is a privilege right like no one deserves a platform necessarily and and I'm it's amazing I've got one so I have to use it but at the same time there's a real tension with the amount of attention I get considering how many people I look up to and what they're doing who don't get the same time type of attention and I think social media has a lot of limitations in the kind of conversations I can have. It's good for introductory conversations, which is what I kind of use it for. It's like, Hey, have you thought about this? Or I'm learning about this. It's really just learning publicly, but it's very one-sided. You know, I put something out there and someone comments on it and then maybe you have a quick discussion about it, but it's, it's more for platforming issues. I use it more for diverting people, signposting people to things I need to know about. The good chat was a opportunity for me to create a space where I'm less reactive and I'm less, oh, I've got to post this, we post this. Yes. Let me look into it quickly. So I know what I'm posting and then I'll post it. And then I'll try and get the, you know, people need to give money to this and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's more like slow learning. I'll spend like three days 
so just to describe what it is, it's a free monthly newsletter where I take on, take on, all right, where I talk about <laughs> the basics of an issue going on in society today and then just give some really simple actions to take on it. And what I wanted it to be was like a very accessible place to start. You know, there's all different types of people on there. There's like six-year-old women who are learning for the first time about these issues and there's, you know, 15-year-old people who are studying sociology and there's like lawyers on there and there's all different types of people. So it has to be really accessible. And it basically is a way for us to learn slower and just think more and ask the questions maybe we're afraid to ask in other spaces. And it also means I'm just not taking up a lot, like as much space, I feel like in terms of activism on Instagram, because I just don't think Instagram is, Instagram isn't activism. It's a tool I use to talk about my work, but I really, I've always wanted to be an action-based activist. Like I change policies and I change things. I don't just talk about the need for those things. And so the Good Chat gives me an, a platform where I can maybe build, help people build up the muscle to take small actions. Because when you start taking small actions, you go, oh, well, I gave evidence, you know, two months ago for that. So I could do it this month. It just makes you more active in the way that you interact with these issues. So that's what I'm trying to build up there. And there's also political commentary on there. There's also resources. So when I read things, I've got a whole bank of hundreds of resources of articles, TED Talks, um, audio, um, uh, like, you know, podcasts and all that kind of stuff that I put on there, which is like just a way to help people learn a bit because I just feel like we need safe space for us to learn. And I, you know, my community can be learning all the time. So hopefully I'll be able to do that better in a less reactive way over there. That was very well put. <laughs> Tied it up at the end there. I, I, yeah. Um, yeah, I really like it. I found it really, really accessible. Um, I have worked in these spaces in various ways for a while, but I still really love anything where it's very clear and actionable and helpful because that's what we want. And also with social media, like, you know, we're not equipped to deal with how much is thrown at us on a day-to-day basis. So having sort of smaller spaces which can sum things up or explore issues or explain issues whatever it is and give us some actionable steps so that also we feel like we have a bit of autonomy in what Mm. we're doing and that we're moving forward rather than getting stuck by all these issues because obviously it's incredible that we know so much about what's going on in the world and have so much awareness but that's also very overwhelming and it's so important people to feel like they can do things I read your piece Um, the most recent one which was obviously in the light of Sarah Everard and what happened over the weekend as well with the Met Police and their response to the vigils that were held for her which is ongoing Mm. the outcomes of that but I thought it was just really really useful and really succinct and something where people can feel like they've connected learned connected and then can also yeah, in a way that's not as like I've connected and I'm gone. That's like, my, do you know what I mean? It's that's I'm just trying to it's slowing it down. I think is the the feeling and like if we can create those online spaces where we're slowing it down, we don't just see social media as like I'm a I'm an activist and social media is my only place to talk to you. I just don't think that works. I can't. There's ninety thousand people on my Instagram. I can't have the conversations I want to have with everyone. Like it's just it's just unsustainable. Mm. So I think slowing that down a bit is. But I was really like, when I did the newsletter, I was like, I'm only going to do three pieces of content a month to start off because I know what it's like with newsletters and they get into people's inboxes and everyone's like, there's not enough content. We want more. And I'm like, well, I'm trying not to block, block up your inbox. I don't want, I'm not the only person you're, you're listening to, but I'm going to be doing more because people have been asking. So it's very nice. <laughs> Give the people what they want. 
Mm. Um, something that you've said to me is not a priority at all for you is social currency. Yeah, which is funny, hey, considering. Pick that for me. Uh, yes, probably very succinctly. The more attention I get and the more platform I get, the more uncomfortable I get with it. And um, this, this very trite and probably cliched experience for anyone who gets a platform, but I there is a way for me to have a platform and use it responsibly and speak about the issues I care about and get people on board. But the bigger it gets, the harder it is to figure out how to do that. And so I think that with, with public attention comes opportunities. And a lot of the opportunities in the first year I got, I just, I did them because I did, I was in a washing machine Mm. and I didn't have good management and I didn't have people around me going, you can say no to stuff. Like you don't have to go to these things. You don't have to go to this event in a room of people and be grabbed by the arm and be photographed and then be just by and then leave. Like, why am I there? Like how this is an activism like that, you know, so now I'm way more, specific about the jobs I take and I have managers who are like really supportive of that and they allow me to say no to whatever I need to say no to and I think social currency in activism and campaigning I think it can get in the way of the whole point of it which is it's about community like it's about all of us that's literally the the fingerprint of what this is. So when it becomes about you or a cult of personality or how big you are compared to someone else or whatever, we've completely lost the point of it. And I think the public eye and social media can really distract us from like what we're meant to be doing here. And I'm, and that's, you know, like anything, it's messaging you're getting all the time. And so you have to fight against it. And I'm constantly fighting against the idea or the want for me to become just a vo- just a voice on stuff and a face on stuff without doing the work. Cause mm. there's a pull, there's a pull all the time for me to be that because I'm this, you know, thin white girl who wears colorful clothes and you're, you love, people love to put me on magazines and all that kind of stuff. And, and I, I just, there's a classic age old thing of like, just see me as an activist. Like I want people to see my work. I want my work to talk for itself. And then anything else I do around that is, because I want to do it and because we're having good conversations and because I love fashion and because, you know, like all the different parts of me, but my work will hopefully speak for me. And at the end of my career, that's what we will talk about is the work. But I think the social currency thing in this, in this industry, industry can get really in the way of that. And it's just constantly reassessing is, am I doing this because it's good for my social currency or am I doing this because it's good for the work because you're pulled in so many distracting ways all the time. I think one of the problems as well is that the social currency can be helpful for the work. Yeah. The platform is helpful. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And so how I get a friend of mine, Layla, they told me a long time ago, a long time ago, it's probably like two years ago, but pandemic life, <laughs> um, a kind of analogy because they're a musician and it was like the concept of like when you, and with drumming, you know, it's 70% practice, like 30% performance. And that's what I try to do in my work. It's like, I'm always researching and I'm always working on stuff and what people see and what I'm talking about is 20, 30% of the work I'm doing. 
Mm. And that's how it should be. But I think we can flip it the other way sometimes and the platform becomes the, the, the priority instead of the work. And I'm just really trying to always reassess that with myself and keep myself on the straight and narrow. It's like, this is about the work. This is about the community. This isn't about me and my platform. And it's just trying to keep that balance all the time, really. I think that's true activism as well. I spoke about this last week with Ursula de Castro. I don't know if you know her. She's the yeah. founder of sustainability movement. Um fashion sustainability and I worked with her for years when I was at magazines and she was talking about this and how she felt about activism on social media and how brilliant it was in one way that there are so many sort of young people coming up talking about sustainability however a lot of it isn't based in much understanding of sort of the global situation of what's going on in terms of the fashion industry yeah broader context the broader context of all of it and that's you know research. yeah so much of it is the quiet stuff like and it that's what we're saying right now with the Sarah Everard conversation the whole conversation around male violence it's like that's what I'm trying to get across to the men that I know because all week it's just been guys being like how can I help and like my answer is the same it's it's go away and learn like go away and if you want to learn about something in, in life, you will learn about it. So if you want to learn about this, go and Google the phrases, go and pick up the books, watch the TED Talks, listen to the podcasts, sign up for the workshops. You know, Jordi is, is going to like a nine-hour course for on masculinity and, and bystander and action and being an ally and all that stuff. And it's like, he hasn't told anyone about it. Like he's just gone and done it because he was like, I, need, I think that I need to do that. That's good. And so it's before you're speaking on something, how much do you know about it? And Ajababa said to me a while ago about these kinds of movements, like these are often movements that not everyone should lead, but everyone should follow. Like a lot of people will be followers of this and you don't have to be a voice on it for everything. And it's figuring out what should you be a voice on and how. And that's a huge part of my situation It's like, there's a lot of things I talk about, quote unquote, on Instagram, but actually it's not me talking about it. It's me just posting other people and platforming other people who are talking about it because I don't, I don't stand it. I don't know. I don't live it. So I guess it's that, yeah, doing the research, knowing the broader context before you speak on it. And should you even be the one speaking on it or should you just be supporting the people who are the experts on it? Similar to the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. So many of these social movements, especially with our community, it's like... Like we really just should be supporting, putting the money in, doing the learning before we, like, we shouldn't be speaking on it really. Okay. So you said that you want to prioritize your health more. We spoke about Mm. it slightly at the beginning. What can you do? Mm. Well, I think for a long time, I thought of health as physical health, which is Mm -hmm. incorrect and um only in the past <clears throat> sort of since the pandemic hit I've been looking after myself way more um probably because of a reassessment of what actually matters which I think a lot of us have done since this began um and also the time and ability to be able to do it um I've switched the way I look after myself in my early 20s it was like going to the gym was about how my body looked just isn't about that anymore because 
I still still really subscribed to you know the ideals and the hallmarks of what makes me valuable was how I looked when I was in my early 20s <clears throat> which is why like when people say would you go back I'm like no <laughs> like I would not go back to uni I would not go back to my early 20s and now like I started working out during the pandemic literally just 20 minutes I refuse to do more than 20 minutes because I don't like it it hurts but it, it's the only thing that it makes me concentrate better like I, I have to, I have to focus on something. I really struggle with concentration and I'm, it's actually comical in terms of my ability to, I'm very distractible. I'm very, it's, it's quite, it's quite actually impressive. Um, How many bank 20, cards have you lost that you talk 20, about? 23. <laughs> and that's just the bank cards. <laughs> um, yeah. 20 minutes focusing on like the drumming, having to focus my mind on my what am I doing with my body here? How am I like, it just makes me way better at concentrating. And it's almost like if I can do 20 minutes where I'm focusing on myself in the day, then I can kind of do anything else that day. And also I just sleep better. I, I have motivation. I'm not like, Oh my God, I've got to do this stuff today. And I'm God, it's going to be heavy. And but it's just like, I have that ability to get up after I have a shower. I'm all showered. I'm all, I feel all good. And I can just like get on with it. It's really way more about all the other things that it's, the exercise has always been about, but I never could see that in my early twenties. And then my mental health, my, you know, investing in therapy for the first time and really like committing to that and being like, I don't, and getting past the idea of being like, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to be the best the best client she's ever had who will really work hard like no because again it's not a competition like just making those boring decisions that aren't glamorous but make me a better happier person in a month's time I'm just trying to do that more I I've drank so little during the pandemic I've tried to move my body I'm going to therapy I'm trying to go to bed early I'm just I'm really trying to be a good person to myself and I'm not doing well at it but my health and my emotional health and my physical health and my mental health just hasn't been good since I was about 25 and I didn't see it because I was just on momentum and now it's stopped I've seen the effect of it and so now it's my responsibility and it's my responsibility because I'm a better partner and I'm a better daughter and I'm a better friend when I'm looking after myself as well so it's not just about me it's about everyone around me too I'd say it's no surprise that your health suffered um yeah experiencing what you did and being sort of thrown into the space that you were thrown into through your work yeah I mean if you'd asked me then I would have been like no I'm like there's not one part of me that thought I was I was struggling I was like the work's like this is really hard but it's really important and I'm doing great like I'm fine and I'm, look, it's fine. I can talk about being upskirted on every single national news station. I can talk about it to anyone that wants to, and everyone does want to find out what that feels like and what I've done and blah, blah. And I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then my first therapy session four weeks ago, she said, tell me about the, the incident. I couldn't get through it for crying. Like I literally couldn't tell her. And I was so shocked by the fact that I couldn't tell her, even though I've told the story for five years, probably 300 times a year and she said yeah because you've it's not because you've removed yourself from the story it's not your story anymore it's something you tell people and you know I'd be in politics talking be in parliament talking about stuff and I couldn't have any emotion because the emotion would delegitimize me so I'd have to be trying to play a bit of a role and then I'd go I'd leave the you know I'd walk out the door and go onto the onto parliament square and do media 
and I'd be completely unemotional. And the producers would be saying to me, that must have been awful. Like, so they had pictures of your vagina on their phone. Do they still now? And they'd be trying to get emotion out of me because I completely removed it from myself in that building. But on the media, I had to be this victim who was surviving this and fighting everyone. They wanted the emotion. So I just completely learned how to tell that story in a way that just doesn't affect me and it isn't related to me. And for the first time sitting in therapy, my brain knew that someone was listening and wanted to help me with it. So I couldn't get through it. And that you didn't so clearly have to it's well okay. anymore. Yeah, I didn't have to be the activist or the upskirting girl or whatever. Like I was just able to sit there as me and be like, I'm really sad. Like this has been really hard. And I just, and I'd done that with my family and my friends, but that's why I went to therapy because it was like, well, my family and my friends aren't my therapist. So maybe like every time we talk, they don't need to spend two hours listening to me cry and help me deal with stuff. Like I need to find a space to do that now. And, that, and it's really, I think that's really helping already. So you say you want to prioritize your health more, but to me, the advice that you just gave is incredibly useful for so many people. And I think will resonate. And in terms of, you know, your social health, you're protecting your creative health, you're protecting your environmental health. I think you're protecting your mental health. You're on it, your physical health. You've got a pretty good approach to all these various aspects. Trying. I'm failing, you know, weekly and then doing well on other days. It doesn't, it never stays that positive, but I think the approach is there and the, and the, the, the real belief in the need to prioritize it is there. And also just the understanding that like, I have, I have the opportunity, so I should be using it. Like I can pay for therapy every week. I've never been in a position in my life to do that. I wasn't in a, I was living in a storeroom of a pub for five years when I moved to London, sharing a camp bed with a friend. Like I've never had the money to be able to do that. So it's a huge privilege to have that. And it's like, well, now I have the resources to look after myself better. I should be using them, you know? I think failure is part of it as well. Cause we can't do Big things time. perfectly. So when we talk about failing at something, I'm never quite sure what that means because as long as you're moving forward with it, I don't know if it is failure. It's just part of it, part of what it is. Yeah, it's true. It's almost just, we just label it back because we're disappointed in ourselves, but it's really like, that's the only way you learn it. And that's the only way that anything works. Like, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon we'll leave it there, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Sorry so for the snot and the tears, Lily. <laughs> Great. And I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. I'll link to obviously all the ways in which people can connect with you, particularly um, to sign up for the good chat. Thank you so much. And um, I'll see you soon. Thank you very yes. much. Take care. See you, soon. you too. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free six-month membership to my online studio, Mindful Moment. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to podcast at lilysilverton.com for a chance to win. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.